0: Welcome to our podcast series called DRIP, where we focus on the significance of user experience and data in the constantly evolving digital media world. We are Sami and Ritva, and we will be your hosts today.
1: We have had the pleasure of talking with Finnish and international experts on topics such as data in its all forms, and also digital uh, transformation, design thinking and more. Today, our guest is Knight Professor in Digital Media Strategy, Jeremy Gilbert. He runs the Knight Lab in Northwestern University, U.S., where they focus on how to develop new, innovative storytelling formats and new tools to utilize technologies. So, Sami, what are your expectations for today? Uh, I'm
0: very excited. Uh, Jeremy is a renowned uh, journalist with background in excellent publications such as. Washington Post and also currently the Knight Lab is one of the more interesting places where they do journalistic research in the US. So everything is set up for a very interesting conversation. In particular, I'm interested in, of course, what he has to tell us about the new types of storytelling formats that he's been working on. But also he has a long, long background with working with natural language generation. I think it's mostly been previously like journalism robots, but also, now language generation is, of course, a super exciting topic uh, since we have the large language models which are good at this particular task. So, it will be interesting to hear wh- how he looks at this transformation and what kind of tips and examples he can give. And especially, I'm interested in hearing some practical cases, what he's been working on.
1: Super interesting. Welcome to our podcast, Jeremy. We are excited about how you, as a professor in uh, digital media strategy, speed up digital chains and new formats in storytelling, but first we'd like to hear about your background in news organizations. Can you tell us about uh, your background working for journalism?
2: Absolutely. Before I came to Northwestern University, at least this time, I worked in professional media for a long time. So I worked both in local media, mostly legacy newspapers, although often thinking about digital questions, and then at National Geographic and The Washington Post. In all those places, I was very focused on using human-centered design and an infusion of technology to change how those media companies could work, to change how we served our audiences, And that's the work that I still do today at the Night Lab.
1: Cool. Could you provide some examples of how you have used technology to create innovative storytelling methods and deliver more relevant information?
2: We tried, especially at the Washington Post, to use new forms of technology constantly both because we thought that they could benefit our newsroom, benefit our audience, but also because we wanted to know what the capabilities were. Sometimes those technologies were very nascent. So for example, while I was at the Washington Post, my team created the first virtual reality stories the Washington Post ever told, the first augmented reality stories, the first customized stories, the first machine generated stories, the first 360 video. And in all of these different cases, what we were trying to do is say, what is the technology capable of, but also what do we need? So we also built platforms to help make it easier for editors to assign freelance stories. And we made ways that improved how stories were scheduled. So we were constantly looking at what we do with an eye, the lens of human-centered design and saying, what should we or could we do, especially using this technology? And we would think about how might we engage our audience more deeply? How can we immerse them more vividly in the kinds of storytelling that we do? And it wasn't so much that any one technology would be the answer, but that constantly reassessing what the technologies allowed us to do was the answer.
1: How did you understand better, your readers, uh, your audience? What methods you used?
2: We believe very strongly in applying ethnographic methods to understand both the audience and to understand journalists and journalism. The reason we favor ethnographic methods over anything else is because we think a deeper relationship with a handful of users, especially extreme users, usually provides the insights that enable us to design for all users. It's not to say that we don't appreciate quantitative methods or other forms of qualitative methods. We can take advantage of a focus group. We can take advantage of a survey, and we've done that kind of work. But when we do ethnography, when we study how people are using media or how people are creating media is when we usually have the deepest insights. The the moment where we say, ah, I see the gap between what is happening now and what ideally would be happening. And sometimes technology allows us to, to fill that gap. Sometimes it's about um, organization or other more explicit methods. But In all of these cases, it's only through the deep study and ideally watching as the users either consume or create media that we realize what these insights should be.
1: Right. Why is the use of technology uh, this important in journalism? What do you think? Is it important?
2: Technology is so critical in media and has always been. In fact, many of the ways that we define different types of journalistic organizations all point back to technology. In the United States, we talk a lot about freedom of the press. It's enshrined in our constitution. But the press itself is just a form of technology. It's just a way of dis- of creating and distributing news and information. And so we've always talked about that. It's not necessarily that you work in a newsroom, but that you work for a newspaper. Well, the paper is a form of technology. It's not that you work in video-based journalism. Oh, you're at a broadcast station, or that you're at a radio station, or even that you create a podcast or short-form video. You know, We define not necessarily the journalistic act of telling stories as journalism, but the way that we get it into the hands of people. So technology has always been critical. I think the other thing is that our, our journalistic methods often follow news consumption patterns. So rare is the time that journalists are the first to move into a new technology space. Often what we do is we say, we have a story. Our audience might be interested in that story. Where can we take that story to where the audience already is? Oh, they're reading printed books. They're listening to the radio. They're watching television. They're consuming TikToks on their phone. Then we say, okay, let's take the journalism there. So I think technology is usually critical Because it allows us to reach the audience where they want to be reached in the form that they want. I think if anything, most media companies don't do enough to say, how can we help our journalists tell better stories through the use of more technology? Or how can we more rapidly get to where our audience already is in terms of its consumption of media and bring our news there? You already
0: touched upon it, but our current project, which is associated with this podcast, has this brief of figuring out how to best use data to improve the uh, media customer experience. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on these topics? And do you have some experiences where you've been struggling with this same question?
2: As researchers, we absolutely love qualitative data. That's where we see these really deep insights, these behavioral patterns that have yet to publicly emerge. But the truth is, That ethnographic research is a lag indicator. It shows what has already been happening generally. And especially at the Washington Post, we really focused on lead indicators. How can we see something about human behavior before it's too late to change it? So for example, a lead indicator that we would look at is, how is the time spent on a page and how deep within a page does a user scroll? And maybe even how quickly as they scroll, are they scrolling down that page? Why are those types of lead indicators so important? They're important because unlike a printed or broadcast piece, digital media is not immutable. If users are not scrolling deeply, if they're not spending time, or if they are scrolling, but they're scrolling very quickly, it indicates that something is wrong with that story. And we still have, in digital media, the opportunity to change that story based on user patterns. So I think from a media consumer standpoint, having quantitative data that we can use to then make actual changes in real time when stories are not resonating or when stories could be better, or when we can see what traffic patterns are and find opportunities to tell new stories. Hugely important. And I also think as we move into generative AI, these kinds of quantitative data trends will enable us to do better personalization and customization of stories. And I think that's going to be one of the major things you'll see that come out of this wave of new generative AI technologies. But I don't think that we have to say data is only on the consumer side. So, for example, when, we were, when I was at the Washington Post, the team that I led built a tool for managing freelancers' stories because we saw how many stories were being assigned And how little overlap, how little usage of the same freelancer we had across a newsroom with more than 200 editors. And so sometimes we can look at how many stories the individuals make or how much traffic is there and not reward or punish, but rather say, why is it that some people are responsible for so much of the traffic? How can we elevate some of these other stories or make more efficient the storytelling that we're doing? or further boost the storytelling that's most desirable by our audience. So we can look at all sorts of sides of it. It's not just on the consumption side but also on the creation side. Cool, very good
0: examples of of how data can be important. Do you before I jump into the next question do do you have other concrete examples how you
2: use data that you would like to bring up? Another way that we use data at the Washington Post especially was in our machine-generated stories. So we can take quantitative data especially and use a rules-based approach. So different than generative AI, because we know already what patterns we look for in the data and then how we might tell the story. But in this way, it enables us to cover all kinds of stories we wouldn't otherwise. And so for the Washington Post, the tool we built is called Heligraph. And Heliograph told all kinds of stories. It started out telling stories of different Olympic events. And it told those specific stories because we wanted human editors and reporters to have time to tell other stories. So it did the work that humans were doing but did not want to do. Then we used Heliograph to tell the stories of elections. But we didn't tell the most high profile, the most controversial, the most interesting races. We told all the other races, the races that were going uncovered. The races where we did publish the data, but unless someone from that specific place dug into the numbers, they would feel like their own house or Senate or gubernatorial race was uncovered. And so not only we could we cover lots more stories, but we could cover stories in ways that humans wouldn't. Which is to say heliograph, especially with the election stories, told living stories, meaning that we would say, here's what's happening in this particular election race. So maybe Montana's Senate race or I was fourth congressional seat. And we would tell that story over time. So first, who's running against who in the primary? And then who is facing off in the general election? And then how are the votes coming in at 30-second intervals? Who's ahead? Who's behind? Is it an upset? Is it a surprise? And then finally, where does this seat fit into the overall election? Because we don't have to use data-driven storytelling to mimic exactly what we do with human storytelling. We can do things that humans wouldn't or couldn't do. Uh, that's cool. So I guess what you're referring to is this template-based
0: uh, generation, which is sometimes called robot uh, journalism, or is this a different thing?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's tempting to imagine a robot actually typing on the keyboard or, or writing with a pen, <laughs> but the reality is a rules-based approach to natural language generation or, or machine-generated storytelling just says when we see a point of data Think about how we want to use that point of data. Don't mimic human speech so much as work within a template or as these more sophisticated engines work, a whole bunch of templates. So it can have branching logic. If this piece of data is here and it is above or below this threshold, then tell the story this way and you can have a series of these gates. And so sometimes at the Washington Post, heliograph stories would be public-facing. Other times at the Washington Post, Heliograph would send signals to human reporters or editors saying, with this much of the vote in, the incumbent is behind. And maybe you need to do a little bit of reporting. Is this expected? Is it unexpected? Is this an early signal that there might be an upset? So you can use this rules-based artificial intelligence in lots of different ways. It is different than, but no less powerful than, generative AI. The advantage that rules-based artificial intelligence has is that you've almost pre-edited it. It's not going to surprise you with what the outputs are. You've trained the system in advance. You've done the copy editing, for example, before the story is written instead of waiting to see what the AI turns out and then assessing, is it, is it correct? Is it real?
0: Super interesting. And uh, let's go back to the generative AI of these days, a bit later in the podcast. Tide is not again then. Not to get too much into the weeds, but two questions regarding the the heliograph. Do you also have sort of outlier detection there? So you could sort of uh, boost some of the stories with certain um, events that you can see in the data, because you can see that this is uh, extraordinary compared to everything else.
2: One of the great things about a system like heliograph is you can write in not only different kinds of stories. So this is, we we also used it for, to cover high school, secondary school, American football. And so we would talk about a heroic performance. When did an individual do much better than was expected? We'd talk about games that ended in the last minute, because again, we know when each of the scores happen. We would talk about record-breaking games because we know what the records are. So did you have more wins than any team had? Did you win by a greater margin? Did you have more losses? Um, You know, Is this a certain number of times these two teams have played? But also sometimes we have to audit the data. And that's the other side of using this approach where we can say, well, wait a second, no one has ever scored as many points as this team or scored broken a record by this many seconds, maybe a human needs to go and check that. It's not that it's automatically wrong, but it might be because sometimes the data is dirty and sometimes a decimal place point goes in in the wrong place or sometimes a human misenters some information. And so even a system that is capable of automatically publishing, you might put in some thresholds and say, if it's below this or above this, flag a human, just have someone look at it. Maybe it's correct but maybe it's not. And even if it is correct, maybe that's a time that a human should write a version of the story instead, because maybe, you know, the the player who scores a hundred points is so unexpected and so unique that we want to feature it. But normally many of those stories went untold. So we wouldn't realize at the time that this heroic performance had taken place. So on both sides, is it worth treating in a special way? And maybe it's a mistake. We can use an automated system to help us. And that's one of the ways that artificial intelligence, I think, is really complementary to human reporting and editing. That's super cool.
0: How, because the way you described it, you can use it for content production generation, but also for discovery. How much did Heliograph become part of the sort of operating system of Washington Post, or was it a tool you would reach for when you think you need something special?
2: Heliograph in particular, because of the way it was built, was not a generalizable system. So you couldn't odd you couldn't say, I would like to tell a city council story today and a sporting event tomorrow. So each time that we wanted to tell stories with a natural language engine like Heliograph, we had to figure out what the templates were, should be. And we'd have to figure out what the thresholds are and what the data sources would be. And so Eventually, do I see tools like that becoming more extensible so you could say, I'm working on a story like this. Tell me when something crosses this line or is below that line. Absolutely. I think that is part of the direction that we are going. Uh, Heliograph debuted in 2014. So we started before a lot of the, the tools that we have today were quite so powerful, but I think you'll see more and more newsrooms start to say, how can we think about artificial intelligence in a hybrid way where humans set the limits, give the tasks, not necessarily turn an AI loose to interpret and publish its own stories, but to assist in the generation of human stories. Cool.
0: We talk about data and we talked about human-centered design, which you talked about, that you have a background as well. And my question is more general, how do you think um, these two domains should sort of intersect in the media industry? Do they intersect, should they? What, what is your sort of analysis of the current state?
2: I think data and human-centered design are codependent. Yes, we believe strongly, I believe strongly in ethnography, and that's, that's what our lab does, but you can't do that in the absence of data. You can think about how data and human-centered design intersect in a lot of different ways. But if you want to identify extreme users, data can be very valuable for that. It can tell you who's visiting the most or who's visiting the least or who spends the most time or shares the most articles. And those might be the people that you want to study more deeply to understand why do they do those things? Why do they love your product so much? Why do they represent it that way? Or you might say, based on demographic trends, this person should love our content but they don't, why don't they? What is their life like now that they don't have a natural space to get news and information that we believe to be so important and so valuable? So finding who to study is one area where data and human-centered design intersect. A second thing we need to think about is once we have the insights and we start to design and experiment with what we can do to, to fill the gaps in the information diet or to create stories in a better, more efficient way, we need to know, do those things work? And yes, we can check it with more ethnographic research, but sometimes the most efficient way is to say, do we see a quantitative difference? So before the trend of reading stories, users spent this much time or scrolled this far. After we intervene, do they scroll farther? Do they spend more time? Or, or maybe we're looking for more efficiency. Maybe we want them to spend less time, but whatever the goals are in a measurable way, We can look at the data and say, okay, have we achieved, based on our our hypothesis, what we expected? So I think data and human-centered design go together very naturally. I think they should be used together. I don't think one is a substitute for the other. I do think many newsrooms are quicker to embrace quantitative data than they are human-centered design methods. So part of the reason that we advocate so much for an ethnographic approach is just because we see less of it. But I wouldn't want to do one without the other. That
0: makes a lot of sense. Let me ask one clarifying question before I hand the mic back to Ritwa. Uh When you say um, ethnographic, I see kind of a wide range of practices. I see the one where you you have a hat on in the corner of the room and you make notes, see what the family does. And the other one is, is more like traditional user tests that you do in, in kind of digital service development. What do you actually mean when you talk about uh, ethnographic?
2: When we talk about the use of ethnography in media, we really are talking about a range of practices. So all the things that you said. So we do spend time just watching. How do people use things? We spend time doing user testing. We spend time using reporting methods. So we just interview the people using media and get them to tell us about their habits. We're not just looking for what they say. We're looking for what is unsaid about the types of behavior they have. Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel like they trust their sources of information? Do they feel like they can assess whether a source of information is good or bad? Do they make time for different forms of media that aren't news? Why do they choose to spend time one way instead of another? So really, truly a wide range of methods. It is great to be able to embed yourself in a situation and watch not just what people say they do, but what they actually do. You know, some, sometimes people want to own up to the scrolling that they do in TikTok or Instagrams. Sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes they talk more aspirationally. Oh, of course, I love international affairs and local accountability reporting. But actually, maybe they're interested in sport. Maybe they're interested in celebrities. So a combination of these different methods, watching what they do, but also hearing what they say, allows us to develop these deeper insights about what their behavior would be if no one was watching or where the opportunities, the gaps are in their consumption habits or why they make the choices that they do. And that's what allows us to make the most interesting products.
1: As the Knight Professor in Digital Media Strategy and Head of Knight uh, Lab Can you describe what types of uh, projects you typically work on?
2: So the Knight Lab is a community of media practitioners, technologists, and designers, and it's a combination of faculty, staff, and students. We believe very strongly that the best way to educate our students is to have them work alongside us on projects that have impact outside of the university. So we partner with all kinds of newsrooms. We work with professional media around the United States. We work with professional media globally. We work on a variety of different types of technology-oriented projects. And we work across the university. We believe very strongly in harnessing the uh, expertise that we have on campus. So it might be computer scientists or designers or or, sociologists, anthropologists, other kinds of researchers around Northwestern, as well as within the middle school of of journalism, media, and integrated marketing and communication. So the lab is a inherently cross-disciplinary place and we study the needs of our population we're designing for, whether those are media creators or media consumers. And then we build tools that help with solving the challenges that they face. And so the lab has a long history of building different kinds of tools. It started by building mostly Web-based storytelling tools to try to allow individual practitioners or newsrooms with few resources to match the kinds of storytelling you might see at the biggest, most global newsrooms. So we built tools that allowed people to tell web-based timelines, tell stories with maps, to compare to photos, to embed audio in snippets of audio behind words in your story. All of those tools were meant to be really simple to use. They were meant to require a minimal level of technical know-how. And today we're building new tools, but we're still building tools with those same populations in mind. We're still thinking about how can we help underserved, under-resourced newsrooms and communities use technology in ways that enable better journalism or a better, more informed society because of better journalism.
1: Cool. Do you publish these tools or uh, how, how news organizations get access to them?
2: The tools are open source, meaning that anyone is free to, to not only use the tools, but to download the tools or to alter, edit and contribute to the tools. So, for example, with our timeline tool, users have come to us from other countries and said, we would love to use Timeline, J- J- timeline JS and Timeline JS is not in our language could we help you make it in this language? And the answer is always yes. Um, and so JS is in more than a dozen languages now, mostly because users have said, I would like to use your tool. I don't want to use it in the languages that are available. I'd like to expand it. The tools are free for end users to use. In fact, there are no hosting costs. There are no integration costs. They're just web-based. There's an embed code like you might embed a YouTube video And you can drop these in. The lab supports the cost of maintaining. Uh, We generally, not always, but generally rely on systems like Google Sheets where you can store the information that appears in the timeline. So the sheet is accessible to you and only you. You make the changes you need and all shows up in the timeline. The goal really is to create very simple tools. We don't want the people who use our tools to have to pay anything if we can help it. We don't want them to have to know particularly anything about technology to use it. We just want to make simple-to-use, valuable systems. And we've had an array of users use these tools, not just journalists, but educators, storytellers. And, and we love that. It's, you know Journalists are the users generally or, or people in marketing and communications that we design for. But the idea that others want to use the tools too was great.
1: Very helpful. Good. If you talk about uh, a little bit about the relevance of journalism, what do you view as the most significant challenges facing journalism today?
2: I think there's no doubt that consumers have more media choices than they have ever had before. And media looks more polished from all sources than it has ever looked before. And so that leads to these twin challenges. At any moment... I can access almost any movie, any song, any book that I have ever heard of. And so we're choosing whether or not to consume news alongside that. If you think about even 40 years ago, we were often saying either I would read the newspaper or the books that were in my house. I would listen to what's on the radio or see what's on TV or watch, you know, recorded media in my house. Today, everything is available at any moment. So customers, consumers have more choice than they have ever had before. That's one thing. Two, there is this huge issue of trust, which is that anyone making any kind of media can look as polished as a professional. So you can't use quality signals anymore to say, is this information relevant, believable? Why is it being made? Uh, is it malicious in its intent? Those are things that are much more difficult to see now. So these, these two options or two challenges that we face around so much more choice and so much less trust are huge challenges that, that really weren't challenges even recently.
1: Yeah. For example, if you talk about news avoidance, how do you view on this matter?
2: I, I think news avoidance stems from a couple of different things. One, lots of people don't feel like they are the target of news that's created. So if you look at young people, we've been studying young people in the lab recently. Oftentimes they feel like news is created for someone else. They believe that they should consume news. It's an adult behavior to consume news. And yet the news doesn't feel relevant. It doesn't feel interesting. It doesn't feel like it's produced for them. And so maybe they avoid it for that reason. Maybe they avoid it because the news is too complex. You have to follow so much background, understand so much background to be able to know what's going on today. So that's a a sort of second challenge. But also, a lot of the news seems grim. And for many people, they say, oh, I can either tune into my, my personal social network and see an idealized version of the lives my friends and family lead, or... I can find out about how the climate is worsening, how there's war everywhere, how there's food insecurity, how there's poverty. And it's not to say that we shouldn't as journalists cover those topics, but that when the mix feels like either in your personal social network, it is only happiness or mostly happiness and professional media only gives you unhappiness, it can lead to news avoidance. And then finally, there is this issue of trust that I think more and more we're seeing people question the motives of professional media because politicians are alluding to this isn't trustworthy or because they read about how, you know, maybe professional media companies are responding to profit motive or responding to audience motivation instead of just doing what they perceive the news consumer to be important. And so we have to confront all three of those things, and we have to confront them in a non-defensive way. It's not enough to say, you should want our stories. We have to figure out why don't they want our stories and what can we do that can bring us inside that circle of trust? What can we do that makes our stories more relevant and more accessible? And I do believe that human-centered design and technology will help us with that, but it also requires an open mind from journalists.
1: Yeah. Do you think uh, that when, for example, technology has... um involved a lot. Uh, We have to more concentrate also on what kind of uh, storytelling formats we are offering for journalists. Is it also a question about uh, creation and new kind of uh, formats?
2: Absolutely. If if journalists don't go to where the audience is, in the format the audience wants, in the way that the audience wants those stories, we are not taking seriously our mission-driven profession, which says news is important. If news is only important if you come to us in the format that we choose to share when we are ready to give it to you, we're probably not actually doing our jobs. One of the big challenges in media today is that our history is in a one-to-many model. The economics of journalism benefit most from the one-to-many model. We make one form of the podcast. We make one form of the story. We make one form of the video. And then we show it to as many people as possible so that we can sell some of their attention for advertising so that they might give or donate or subscribe to pay for that content. And that has been the most efficient way to create journalism economically forever. Where I believe that artificial intelligence and some of these new technologies benefit us most is that they allow us to decouple reporting from story creation. So we can gather facts, we can gather information, and then we can assemble it in as many forms as we want. So if the way journalism has always been was one-to-many, what I hope we can get to is one-to-one for many. So we can create the form of the story with the information in the most accessible way at the time that the particular audience member is ready for it. That gives us the best chance of getting the information where it belongs. But one journalist can't create thousands, if not millions, of variations. That's why we need technology. Uh, super interesting. So let's dig a bit deeper into this AI
0: bit that everyone's uh, busy with now currently. But before we go deep, maybe we go up uh, for a second. So uh, we are in a moment that is sort of comparable to cycles of transformations in society, but also, of course, in media. So we had the mainframes, then we had the PCs, then we had the Internet and lastly, mobile devices and and phones in the past. I guess uh, one can assume that AI is a similar transformation. My question to you is, how do you think this cycle is different
2: from these past ones? I think one thing that is different about artificial intelligence than other forms of technology change. There was a moment that no one left the house with a mobile phone. There was a moment that people left the house with mobile phones that basically only allowed you to call or text. And now there's a moment that people leave the house with smart devices that allow you to do anything that you can do on a desktop or laptop computer. The thing that is different about artificial intelligence than that is that artificial intelligence has this habit of feeling magical in the moment and pretty soon after being mundane. And this magical to mundane transformation happens so quickly. So if you're old enough, you can remember writing on a computer a paper where at the end you were responsible for making sure the spelling and grammar were correct. That wasn't even a thing that was possible. And now I think most people, even children learning to, you know, learning language in school automatically have spell check and grammar check built in. And nothing about that feels like artificial intelligence. When I'm texting, I'm more frustrated when Android or Apple's iOS don't prompt me with the right word than I am amazed when they do. I just sort of expect that they are good at predicting what word should come next and they can help me actually complete my thoughts. Right now, generative AI is in the magical phase. It really feels because these large language models are so good at prediction, And we are so unaware of how much we telegraph our questions that something like ChatGPT seems like magic when it answers the question. It's not to say that these technologies aren't incredibly powerful, I think they are. There is so much we will be able to do that we were never able to do before. What will be different than some of these other technologies that may feel less like a glacial shift is that as soon as we get used to it, it'll feel mundane. And while it is true that I don't think anything of the fact that I can make reservations or get directions or answer emails or write my next paper all on my phone, I recognize that it allows me to do a lot of things that I couldn't otherwise do without it. I don't know that we will notice generative AI as it becomes more fully infused in our lives. I think it will just feel like it was always there. And that is something that's pretty different On the other hand, I think that generative AI gets us much closer to a more natural way to communicate with computers. And that part is very transformational. And I think what you will see is a generational divide. And the generational divide will be similar to other types of technology, which is to say, there'll be some users who came of age during the adoption of generative AI. And they will end up bridging between. The people too old to comfortably change their habits and too young to remember when there wasn't generative AI, but that we'll see that sort of same adoption where 10 years ago, there were all kinds of funny videos of people teaching their grandparents to use a tablet and videos of babies using tablets without being prompted. I think we will see some of the same, who are the people who adopt generative AI most quickly? Who are the people who can't remember that there was life before it? And who are the people who never quite feel comfortable with generative AI? But I think the most important thing to remember, as we have with all these different technologies, is that we are really bad at predicting what is unlocked by these technologies. I don't think when the iPhone debuted that anyone would have said, this is the end of paper boarding passes, but it is. And I think in the same way. We have to ask, what is it that generative AI is going to enable us to do that we can't even imagine today needs to be changed? And that's, again, why I believe so strongly in human-centered design, is we need to find out what are the opportunities that generative AI can fill, and then use them, rather than what is it that generative AI does that is most close to something we already do? Because that's probably not the best use. Super.
0: How do you see it? will transform the media and newsrooms.
2: I think first, we'll see generative AI help us scale our efforts. So it's going to be plugged in to make us more efficient at the things we already do. And you've seen some really good examples of this. So baked into Google Docs, at least for some users, as you type, it helps you generate the next few sentences. Large language models are great at that kind of prediction. It's pretty natural. You see people thinking about it in a way that helps them replace an inefficient form of search. It's hard to remember because Google seems so efficient, but that search engines like Google and like Bing really give us a multitude of answers when actually if we ask a question, we probably just want one. We want one answer in conversational form that feels complete and trustable. And so you'll see generative AI work on things like that. I have seen lots of colleagues who smartly are integrating generative AI in ways that help them transcribe interviews, in ways that help them test out different kinds of headlines, in ways that help them generate quizzes or summarize information. And all of those are good and valid and useful, but also not the ways that I think will end up having the most impact because that's us using a new technology for things we could already do. And I think the things that we are only starting to ask ourselves, why do we do it that way? That's where generative AI in the long-term will have the most impact. Cool. Do you have projects now that are addressing these kind of
0: questions? I'd like to hear about them. And also kind of, I'm interested in how you see this trajectory of development that we have seen.
2: I don't see generative AI as a complete replacement for structured natural language generation. In fact, right now in the lab, we're working on a project with a Puerto Rican-based news organization who publishes primarily in Spanish, and weather bulletins from the National Weather Service in the United States go out in English and Spanish when time and resources are available, which isn't always when there's impending storms, you know, they're busier when it's most important. And so We are looking at taking a feed. We're working with the Associated Press on a grant from the Knight Foundation to take a feed from these weather services and automatically translate into Spanish the latest weather bulletins. It's important that we make sure that the system does not hallucinate. It's important that we know when to tell people that a severe storm is coming it's important that in that moment when the human reporters are busiest preparing for the storm preparing to cover the storm that we tell that story in as many ways as the audience needs so using a rules-based system we know what the outputs will be We can predict we can put in place those guardrails to say if something is outside of this range flag a human but we can also use this automated, automated translation layer to put out stories in all kinds of different forms. We can write tweets, we can write Facebook posts, we can write blog posts, we can write an email newsletter. We can do all those things and do them all instantly at a time that it is most important for the journalist to concentrate on the things only the human journalist can do. So to me, rules-based artificial intelligence, natural language generation, machine-generated content, whatever you call it, can coexist with generative AI. At this point, I'm not sure that I would trust a generative AI system to always output something that I would want to directly publish. But I believe you can trust a rules-based system to do so. So the two systems can live alongside each other and be used for very different purposes. I also think that generative AI offers possibilities that these structured natural language generation tools don't can allow us to be more creative it can be trained better stylistically it can learn from the kinds of things that we value but it's not automatically a replacement for what we can do with structured structured uh ai do you have sort of ideas where you could generate the
0: input with the rule space and then sort of make the last uh, touches
2: with the llms i i think the idea that we use different forms of artificial intelligence to feed our end needs is absolutely right. So for example, uh, Zach Wise, who's a professor in our lab, has been working on a tool where you take a pre-written, presumably human-written news story, you feed the, U- the URL or the, the text of the news story into our tool, and then it does a series of things. It does some natural language processing to understand who are the most important and what are the most important entities within the story then it uses generative ai to write a prompt it feeds that prompt into a diffusion engine one of the tools that uses generative ai methods to make images and then it makes a series of different images but those images don't happen just solely from the generative ai prompt it also includes some rules-based direction here are the things that we think are important. We need to make sure that the images are diverse. We need to make sure that the images follow these other conventions. We need to make sure that stylistically the images are appropriate. So what you see there is a series of different types of AI, all feeding together to make one system. And I think we'll see a lot more of that. So it'll be a combination of what kinds of direction can we give it through prompt engineering um, and then what kinds of outputs and how do we assess whether those outputs are what we want. and I do think it's not that we will never get to a point where we can trust generative AI. I suspect we'll see more and more of that as the models get better and our tolerance for what the models put out get better, but that we'll still want to use a variety of different methods in the same system and and that's where I think this combination of existing tools will get us the best outputs exactly so so the to- Ensemble systems that takes
0: different, uh, different approaches to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what about this? Uh, uh, how, can, how can we use AI to personalize and engage users? you uh, depicting a world where, I don't know if you mean so far as even, you know, you, we all would have a different version of that same story. Is that what you're envisioning?
2: When we talk about personalization, we can't talk about it without talking about intention. So is the intention to give people radically different versions of the same story, tell people fundamentally different things about the same event, or is the intention to make sure that everybody has the same understanding of the event, acknowledging that people read at different levels, that people have different background on a particular story, that people have different amounts of time or respond differently to different forms of media or read or watch or listen on different devices. And so... One kind of personalization puts us all in our own camps and allow us to sort of sit and stew within our own prejudices. And the other says, we are going to meet you where you are and get everyone to a similar understanding. The latter, getting everyone to the same understanding, but acknowledging it's going to take different forms of the story seems usually important to me. If we can use tools like generative AI, and we're building prototypes in the lab to do this, To help people get to that goal of understanding what news is about, that is at the heart of our craft. And if it takes everyone getting a slightly different version of the story so that we have a common understanding, that's great. The technology enables us to do that. We don't need one form of the story to have one understanding of the story. We need many forms of the story so that we can get to that one understanding. So what are specific prototypes that we're working on? For example, Most of the very important news stories of the day are told in running accounts. So here's what happened most recently in the talks about climate change or in the trade negotiations or in the ongoing war or in the political situation. And it is very dependent on what happened yesterday and the day before, or maybe even in the hours before. And it pretends that all news consumers consume news like journalists, that every time a news story goes up, we read and read and read and read. We know that doesn't happen. We know from analytics. We know from qualitative research. We know from ethnographic study. Sometimes people read obsessively and mostly they don't. And so we built a tool in the lab that says, using first party data, how recently have you come to the website? When did you last read a story on this topic? How many stories have we published on this topic since you last read one? Well, here's a new story on this topic, and we are going to generate a summary just for you of all the stories you didn't read. And we're going to use generative AI to do that. And that is a little different for almost every user, but it doesn't hurt you in any way. All it says is I'm going to close the gap of background knowledge. Another example is that some users have a deeper understanding of the people, places, and things mentioned in a news story. And so we can harvest through that news story, the most important people, places, and things, and we can explain, define them for users. And so if you need that background information, great, consume it, click on it, read it, view it. If you don't need it, skip over it and we'll save you a bunch of time because you already know who these principal figures are. A third way to think about it is for some of our users, we mostly work in English language media, some people, English is a second language. Some people are learning English even as a first language right now. We can write and rewrite a story at different linguistic levels. We can keep the same complexity of the news and information, but we can make the, the, the words themselves more accessible. So if English is your second language, you might have a really good understanding of how global systems work, but you need a plainer form of English. If you're a child and you're learning English at the beginning of your life, you may need more definition and simplification of some of these key things. So in all these different ways, we can do personalization, but we're not pandering. We're just trying to make it easier to consume and understand
0: news. Uh, Fantastic. That's a very clever uh, application of it. And it makes a lot of sense what you explained about sort of differentiating the informational uh, personalization and the other type of personalization. I mean, I I guess you could You could see a world where, for one person, you describe uh, Trump as the worst villain in the world, and for the other person, the biggest hero in the world. That's a kind of a scenario that is possible with these technologies, which would induce the same problems as we used to talk about filter bubbles and these kind of things. Is this something that you think about a lot? Do I
2: worry about people using the same tools that we could use to make news more accessible, to make news more partisan? Of course. And will people do that? Probably. I don't think realistically we can keep the tools out of the hands of users because of that. But we as journalists, and especially I hope the tech platform should be thinking about how do we ensure that the news that people are finding is the most valuable form of news and not a form that that focuses them on their prejudices or, or retreats them to their camps. I think that there is a risk there. I think that also we can't ignore the fact that some forms of language and framing are more acceptable, more, more valid to different groups. And so we, for example, in the lab, have played around with the idea that we can understand partisan language and we can try to recast the same set of facts in language that is more resonant for people with particular partisan beliefs. So I think if you say two fundamentally different things, you know, one story says in in the u.s president biden is a criminal and the other story about the same information says that former president trump is a criminal and and they're showing two different sets of facts that's a problem if for example you want to talk about climate change and for liberal partisans you want to talk about the the need to slow climate change and for a more politically conservative audience who talk about how important it is to conserve natural resources, and we're getting at the same point, that's fine. If the value of EVs for one person is framed as in, you don't have to pay high gas prices, and for the other person, it's you're saving the planet, you know that, that kind of thing to me is okay, as long as we're getting at the shared understanding of facts. Now, how do we deal with these bad actors? I think that's difficult, but frankly, I think story discovery becomes the most important part there. Are we through our our search tools, through our tech platforms, are we surfacing the best kind of information? Or are we allowing the most vitriolic, the most divisive information to be public? It's not that journalists don't bear any responsibility here. But we probably can't solve this problem alone. What we can think about is how do we make experiences where our consumers come to us specifically for news and information as good as possible. And maybe in that way, we can protect people from some of their worst instincts by making them more habitual users of better news. Wow. Thank you. This was
0: fantastic. Thank you for, for joining our podcast. Oh,
2: it was really a pleasure to be here. I think you're asking the kinds of important questions that we need to be thinking about. And only time will tell if generative AI is as impactful as we think. But I do believe that a combination of data plus human-centered design is the way that we're going to figure it out.
1: Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you.
0: Well...
1: What, what were
0: your main takeaways from what Jeremy uh, was talking about?
1: I personally liked very much what kind of role he gave to uh, human-centered design in journalistic processes and especially he mentioned ethnographic methods. I think we need uh, to understand better how to build uh, relevance in journalism. Talking uh, about AI, he said that it is not the question whether we can do the same thing better but rather that uh what are the different things we can do with ai what about you uh, what are your takeaways sami
0: uh, i agree very much i think you sort of uh, honed in on the interesting points that he uh, raised uh, i'm also worried i i've been working with the human centered designs also more than a decade and i i think we don't do that enough in the media context and we need more voices like him who talk about uh, understanding the needs properly with the proper tools, like you say, is super relevant. When it comes to AI, I thought why Jeremy is very interesting is that he's been working with language generation for quite some time already, so it brings a different perspective to what uh, what we're used to hearing in the media context, and it's, it's super interesting. I think a lot of the discussion around personalization of content Interesting. I mean, uh, I like the way he kind of distinguished the ways we should, with some sort of journalistic mission, do personalization, which is more about personalizing the context or the approachability of the the information that we want to convey. Whereas, of course, it, it can be many other things as well. And we touched upon the sort of risks involved here. Like if we let that sort of ad-based business model do the personalization, there is a risk that we end up in a place we do not want to be in. So it was refreshing to hear how they have thought about how personalization using large language models should be done if we want it to work. But that of course requires that we have a journalistic vision. So it's a, it's an interesting... Topic, which we could have talked much more about, but he he said so many things already. So,
1: and I'm I'm very happy that he gave that uh, concrete examples how to work with uh, AI. That's really cool. Thank you very much, Samin. It was a pleasure to uh, have this discussion. You too.